Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We live in a world where we are hearing a large number of concerns about climate change. One of the things that we repeatedly see in the media are the issues with rising levels of water, in particular the melting of the ice caps. It's a complex study in some respects, but very obvious in others, and we need to discuss it. So we need to know what to do about it and how it's going to impact our lives. Alan Lockwood is a retired emeritus professor of neurology at the University of Buffalo, and he also worked for many years and still does actually with an organization known as the Physicians for Social Responsibility, a group that looks at these issues. Dr. Lockwood, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Where should we begin? Do people need to panic over this? Is it still at a crisis level? Give us an overview of what we mean by the rising water levels and perhaps related to the ice cap melting. Abby, I'd like to start with a definition of health when I talk about these issues. I like the World Health Organization definition, which is also embraced by the Centers for Disease Control. Health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. We talk about disease and infirmity when we talk about health all the time, but sometimes lose track of the elements of mental and social well-being. I think climate change is a great example of the kinds of issues that arise with health that have led us to think of climate change as a public health emergency. It's not like the car crash where somebody's going to die in 20 minutes if you don't administer them properly. But we have a responsibility to use our information that we've gained as the result of our medical education and experience to do what we can to mitigate and adapt to what we know is coming down the road in terms of climate change. This is a slow-moving emergency that needs to be dealt with now. You know, the old proverb, a stitch in time saves nine, is highly applicable to this issue. And Florida is one of the parts of the country that's going to be the most susceptible to many of the rigors of climate change. Heat, which is the leading cause of weather-related deaths in the United States and has been for about 35 years or so. Rising sea level intense tropical storms that come ashore in Florida with predictable regularity and proliferation of diseases that you've gotten a bit of a taste of with the Zika scare not too long ago. But other tropical diseases like dengue are likely to become permanent invaders of the South Florida health care picture. I read recently the report had come from a group in the Himalayas watching the melting of the ice in the Himalayas, and I was impressed by the fact that they actually called it the third pole. We have the North Pole, the South Pole, but there's so much ice in the Himalayas, they're calling it the third pole. This raises the the concern as well because it's it, it's massive. The predictions are massive of what's going to happen when they get all this fresh water. Your thoughts? Aspects to that. First of all, melting glaciers in the Himalayas are the source of the water that goes into the Ganges. And the report that you were referring to predicts that in the not too distant future, a third to two thirds of the ice in the Himalayas will disappear as the result of warming temperatures. If the rivers in India begin to dry up or reduce their flows substantially, it's going to be a huge catastrophe for people who live there. And you have to remember that this is a country that has nuclear weapons. 
and the experience in examining what happens in other parts of the world when people are stressed by too much or too little water, the probability of civil conflict rises quite dramatically. It's a frightening concept to see nuclear-armed countries like India and others that begin to run out of water and where water becomes something that leads to civil conflict. Plus, just imagine what it would be like if you went to the water tap and turned it on and nothing happened. Multiply that by the population of India. <laughs> it's huge. It's just huge. It, it, it's huge. You know, people don't hear the term, and I haven't heard it actually used in quite some time, so it was called water wars, wars over water. I could see that happening. I could definitely see that, that happening. One of the questions that always comes up, and I, I have to ask, is people are saying, well, wait a minute. The Earth has gone through climatic changes historically all by itself. How much of this is just a natural cycle, which can still be bad in raising water levels and the effects on our communities? And how much of it is human-produced? Where do we draw that line if we can? That's an argument that's one of the favorites of the climate change deniers. They contend that, you know, this has happened before in the past. It's happening again now. But that's at odds with the evidence that favors that climate change is the result of human activity. And that begins to get a bit on the esoteric side. But you're right there. You know, sea levels have been much higher than they have been in the past, as have temperatures. But those evolutionary changes took place over tens of thousands of years. What we're seeing now is something that's happening in the period of just a few decades, so that the speed with which this is happening is inconsistent with the natural forces that have been changing the climate in the past. We know quite a lot about the so-called paleoclimate, climate that can stretch back to 24, 25 million years ago. And right now, the carbon dioxide levels that are present in the atmosphere are higher than they have been at any time in the last 24 million years. And there's good evidence from isotopic analysis of the carbon dioxide that's flooding the atmosphere now but it's coming from burning fossil fuels. That's not a natural phenomenon. That's a human endeavor. And how comfortable are we in making a prediction? When will it reach a critical level that we can't control anymore? And what do we do? How, how are we going to survive? Well, you're referring to a tipping point. Yes, yes, a tipping point. Yes, sir. There are lots of tipping points. There are tipping points for sudden release of huge amounts of methane that are frozen in the Arctic tundra. Some people believe that, that that's a game-over type tipping point. If something were to happen to the Gulf Stream, that would be another tipping point for worldwide climate change and catastrophe. There are lots of these smaller tipping points that have already happened, according to analyses that have been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We need to avoid the kinds of tipping points that make life on Earth untenable, or at least hugely more difficult than it is right now. One of the things that we can learn from the examination of past climate data and records that we've been meticulously keeping and comparing what we have observed in the real world with what's predicted by models of climate, we find that, or climate scientists do, we find that if, if anything, 
the climate change is advancing more rapidly than prior models have predicted it. We read every now and then about efforts to sequester, to get the carbon dioxide out of our environment, and they bury it, and they put it in the ocean, and they do all sorts of things. Is there any comfort in those? Perhaps there's some comfort in them, but these are solutions that are decades, if not longer, away from reaching the point where they become economically viable or even even work on a scale that needs to be adapted uh, if we're going to be able to deal with the problem of climate change. It's much easier to adopt strategies for generating electricity, uh, solar and wind power sources, than it will be to produce large-scale carbon capture and sequestration technologies. I read a very interesting proposal. The itself said that it may not be practical, but it talked about massive reforestation, growing thousands and thousands and millions of acres of trees in the Australian and in the Sahara deserts. At one level, it seems like a good idea, more trees, carbon dioxide is absorbed into the trees, but it downwind all by itself changes the environment. We need the deserts for certain things as well. You, again, your thoughts on that type of thinking? Trees need a lot of water. Not very much water in the outback of Australia or in the Sahara Desert. The effect of what we're actually doing with forests is we're cutting them down and burning them to make room for growing soybeans and corn to feed the world's growing population. And that deforestation is happening in Brazil where the Amazon is being hacked back in a ruthless manner. Before we can begin talking about planting huge new forests, we need to preserve the ones that we have and work very hard on developing sustainable sources of energy from from wind uh, and solar power. Let me go back to what you said at the very beginning. You talked about how the definition of health has several different domains. I, I agree with you on that. I didn't totally agree. What effect, from your perspective, do you think this is going to have on the caliber of our relationship to our communities, our own mental health, our own fears, and, you know, the Zika viruses and the heat that's causing the problems? Psychologically, what do you think about all this? That is an area of climate change science that I think has been neglected to to some extent, but is showing up in what we know about the mental and physical reactions to people who are affected by the catastrophes that were associated with Hurricane Katrina, where New Orleans was inundated by what happened to Houston when 50 inches of rain fell on that community in just a few days, flooding huge neighborhoods traumatic stress disorder that that has induced in the survivors of these catastrophes. So these are people who thought that they were safe living where they were, and all of a sudden they weren't. They were flooded out. The same thing is happening with people in California and other communities. The community of Paradise, California, was just completely eradicated by the campfire. They saw their homes burned down in front of them. They go back and they see that all of their worldly possessions are gone. They're scrambling to try to find a place to live, to work, to survive, to raise their families. 
incredibly stressful, and it's exactly a toll. You know that these aren't people with broken legs or bleeding wounds. These are people who are have stress disorders that show up in terms of their psychological confidence that the future is going to be good to them. And with that comes, let me see how I should word it, the almost difficult at times accepting that all this really is a result of global change and just not a couple years of some bad storms. I'm sitting in Florida this morning. The weather's beautiful. It's almost like, really, there are problems in the world? It's ideal. It's it's hard to get people to accept it without putting them, shall we say, into a panic. How do we approach those problems? How do we educate? Where, where, where seems to be the problem in getting it out there? There's room for a lot of optimism in looking at, at the future. Public opinion surveys show that increasing numbers of Americans, including those who supported political candidates who say that climate change is a hoax at best, Believe you know these people believe that climate change is real. It's the leaders they elected that don't believe that it's real, or at least are behaving in that way. And if you look at where political power comes from, it ultimately comes from the people. And if we work to educate the populations of the country that you know, these are people who have a lot to lose with the ravages of climate change bearing down on them. Farmers whose crops are failing because it's too hot during the critical periods of crop development, like pollination, it's absolutely essential that temperatures remain in a favorable range. If they're too high, crops fail, or they are struck down by drought. Or undrinkable fresh water. I'm told that here in Florida, the salt water is rising enough that it's going into the fresh water supplies. It's going backwards. Well, that's exactly right. One of the ways, there are a couple of ways that you can protect yourself against rising sea levels. And one of those is to build barriers or seawalls, which is what the Dutch have done. They have spent a huge amount of money protecting that country from storm surges and storms. That doesn't work very well in South Florida because, as you know, the limestone in South Florida is very porous. It's just like a sponge, and water percolates right through it, uh, like a filter where you filter your coffee. The grounds stay on one side, but the coffee comes out on the other. And saltwater intrusion into drinking water supplies is becoming an increasing problem in South Florida. You already have these king tides or perigean tides that occur a couple of times a year when the astronomical forces, the sun and the moon, line up where the moon is as close as it gets to the earth and the pull on the water is maximum. There are pictures of people riding to work or going to their stores through the water. Some of the communities in South Florida have already raised their roads a couple of feet in order to be able to cope with these things that are happening already. Now, if you add another meter or two of rising sea level on top of that, and then throw in a storm surge from a really terrible hurricane, those forces just can't be resisted anymore. Is this the sort of problem that has to be fixed by government? I guess the real question is what can the individual do by themselves in their home to help offset this? When I talk about climate change, and I do with some regularity, I always emphasize the point that there is something that every single one of us can do. These may seem like small things like changing your light bulbs to LED fixtures that use very little electricity. By changing your diet, 
particularly by reducing the amount of red meat that you consume in favor of plant-based foodstuffs or sustainably produced fish or birds such as turkeys and chickens that require much less protein in their feed in order to produce a pound of edible protein. Automobiles that, if not completely electric, get more miles per gallon than the behemoths that you are likely to see parked in parking lot or you go to purchase your groceries or buy other things that you need. So there are a lot of things that people can do on an individual basis. In Buffalo, we had solar panels on the roof of our house, and we generated about 80 to 85 percent of all of the electricity that we use on an annual basis. Throughout the summer, uh, when there wasn't snow on these panels, uh, we generated more electricity than we consumed, and we put the electricity back into the grid. Some places, the power companies lobbied heavily against rooftop solar installations because it's a threat to Paradoxically, they're having a hard time generating enough electricity, but paradoxically, they want it tougher for rooftop solar installations to, to work properly. It's crazy. We, we need to have people study the problem, don't go into a panic, be educated about it, and do the best you can. Alan Lockwood is a now-retired neurologist, and I congratulate him on his retirement, but he still works very heavily in the areas of climate control, and he has, as you've heard, he's very knowledgeable about this topic, and we thank you for taking this on what is really a very brief tour, but an important tour of a very large problem. Dr. Lockwood, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.